You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Well, good morning. I want you to take your scriptures again and let's head back to the book of Romans. Once again, to explore, look at God's Word together by His Spirit guiding us into His truth that we have before us in the Word. So Romans chapter 6 is where we are at, beginning a new chapter on your way there. I've got one picture from last week. This is from Annika Collins and drew this. And if you can see it, oh, there, it's brighter up there. Okay, there is, uh, there is a slave and a farmer, and we talked about that, that uh, master in the Old Testament where the slave could go free, but if he wanted to stay, he would take and put a take an awl awl to the the ear, pound it through the ear, and she picked up on that. And that was that idea of let us give our ear to the Word of God and listen to it, and then not not just hear it, but hear it with obedience, and then pass it on to the next generation. So thank you, Annika, for that picture. Great. We're in Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11, but I'm actually going to start in verse 20 because it'll give us just, just a bit of context coming into a question of Paul into chapter 6. So let's look at God's Word, starting in verse 20 of chapter 5 and then coming into chapter 6. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one, has di- for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we all- will also live with Him We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we... Ask again for your Spirit to work in the Word that the Spirit has written for us through human authors. Lord, we trust that the truth is before us. And Lord, we pray for your Spirit to give us that that understanding. And Lord, may our lives look differently having heard and listened to what you have shared with us in your Word. I pray that for the one preaching and I pray that for the one's hearing, Lord, that all of us would be conformed more and more to your image, that we would truly see the reality before us of our great identity in Christ. 
And so I pray for this time, committing it to you for your glory, to work amongst us for for you. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a truth in this passage that is true no matter how you feel. That's really important. God's gracious work in our lives by His Spirit is a true work, and it's, it's not moved by how we, how we feel about it. Feelings can be a big thing these days around us or even for us personally. Now, I want to be sure feelings do come. We ought to experience joy and gladness in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice, Paul would say. But, but what if in our weakness we don't feel joyful or glad? Or even more basic, what if we don't feel like we're in Christ? As feelings come and go, Romans 6 speaks truth to all who are in Christ. All who have, by God's grace, put your faith in Christ for your salvation. And it speaks truthfully to those who have been united to Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And that's what believers' water baptism is going to represent So the truth of the one who is united to Christ is that they have, in fact, died to sin and are, in fact, in reality, made alive to God in Christ Jesus. So if you be in Christ, no matter how you feel at the moment, you are united to Him, raised with Him, forgiven and free. And that's cause for rejoicing, for a, a feeling. But the rejoicing is not the ground of your identity in Christ. Christ is. He's the ground of your assurance and your peace in Him. And so if Christ is alive, and He is forever, then you indeed truthfully are alive in Him, united with Him. So we're going to see as we look through this passage, this unity in Christ here. But Paul begins chapter 6 with a question. Look at verse 1 again. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul anticipates a wrong conclusion from chapter 5, perhaps. if, If sin, so here's the wrong conclusion. If sin increases grace, then why not sin all the more? Now, it's not entirely clear who's Paul's audience here. I looked at at one, even my study Bible talks about Paul's Jewish opponents. You know, Paul's preaching this gospel of grace, and so maybe the Jewish opponents were saying, see, Paul, your, your gospel of grace, it's just going to lead to people, they're just going to sin all the more, because if sin increases grace, and, and that's, so maybe that's an audience for Paul. But I also think Paul is addressing potential loopholes for sin, a, a loophole. You know, something, a, a rule you don't like, or you don't want to follow, you find a loophole to get around it, a way to get around something, maybe to the one Paul is addressing, they're thinking, if there's a way, okay, if there's a way I can still sin, and yet grace abounds, well, that's kind of the best of both worlds, isn't it? I still get to do my, my desires to sin, and I still, but I get grace and a couple thoughts on loopholes here. Number one, some would seek a loophole for sin. To that person, you, man, I want to find a way to get to sin. I want to I find that. Maybe I close my Bible more or just close my ears. I want to find a way. It would be valid to question the genuineness of the faith of that, of that person. That one that says, I want to find a way. It, here's my ticket. My ticket to sin. Okay? 
So that, that might be one, merely one that wants to just kind of play the Christian role for a short-term benefit, uh, but is really not in Christ. But there's also, number two, for us. Maybe you say, I'm not that, but for us even, to just remember the self-deceiving nature of sin that, that we still live with. It's still strong, even for the believer. We're going to see sin's power has been broken, and yet this this nature, this indwelling sin, it, it remains for now. And, and for proof of that, look to chapter 7 of Paul. As much as we might want to say for ourselves, I don't desire sin any longer, don't we still find ourselves back in the same hole of sin, maybe that we just confessed just yesterday or just hours ago? I just confessed that, and I'm here back in this sin once again. We may look down on those who look at grace as just a just a way to sin all the more, but we want to check our own heart. Does not sin arise in us when we hear a small voice, not, not God's voice? If you hear that voice in sin, maybe you hear it, it'll be okay. God's grace will cover that. Maybe it's a softer whisper. I can sin, God's grace. I've done this before. I've confessed this before. It all works out. Nothing really is going to... That idea. We need to be careful in that. Paul answers here, should we continue in sin? He answers in verse 2, by no means. No. <laughs> How can we who died to sin still live in it? Is another question. And here is Paul beginning his argument. He's going to continue to weave in and out as we go. His answer, it's a strong answer, do not continue in sin. How, how could you? You died to it. Lest we think this is just Paul, Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, talks about Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might, here's Peter's words, die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Healed, not to go back into, the, into that, but to come out of it. So Paul's going to come back, this idea of, of dying to sin, he's going to come back to this more than once here, but just briefly, what does it mean to have died to sin? Some might answer here, meaning the believer no longer sins at all. The believer is just done, done sinning. But I don't think that fits with even, even Romans here. What we'll find even a couple verses later, verse 12, Paul's going to call the Romans and say, say to, to not let sin reign in your mortal body. It seems like it still is there. Don't let it reign there. Or chapter 7 again, as I mentioned, it would seem there, Paul, the believer here, he's wrestling with this indwelling sin. There's a war being waged, even in the, the believer. Leon Morris would answer this way, that Paul here is referring rather to the death to sin that marks the beginning of the characteristic Christian life. It is the end of the reign of sin and beginning of the reign of grace. There's a new reign taking place. And it would be a perfect illustration, but the death of Queen Elizabeth illustrates this in a way. Again, at least it's, it's an end to a reign of sorts. Now, King Charles, whatever, the second, third, what, is going to take that, that reign over. But there's an end of the reigning of, of Elizabeth's age. And by the way, good plug on that, Al Mohler... Um, Oh, looking up Al Mohler on the Queen and, and a good, good presentation on that whole thing, but that's just a side note. But there's the rain, this changing of the rain by a death. 
That's what changed it. And so too, there is a death to sin Paul is talking about here. And that the reign of sin has ended in our life, this, this power ending. So Paul asked them, how can you who died to sin still live in it? How can you live in this that you've died to? Again, commentator Doug Moo here comments on what it means to live in sin. He's saying it's, it's best taken as describing a lifestyle of sin, those that would live in sin. I think this is important. He says it's a, a habitual practice of sin such that one's life could be said to be characterized by that sin rather than by the righteousness God requires. Such habitual sin, that's the ongoing, just habit-forming sin, this remaining in sin, living in sin, is not possible, Moo says, as a constant situation. For the one who has truly experienced the transfer out from under the domain or tyranny of sin, sin's power is broken for the believer, And this must be evident in practice. Evidence of sin's power being broken, we ought to see that in our life. Being perfect without sin, sinless, no. So Paul continues then from verse 2 into chapter, verses 3 through 11 here. Three times uses the various forms of the word to know, but I'm going to use it as, as sort of an outline here of these knowing things and and so, number one, we're going to look at to know your baptism. And then number two, we're going to say, know you have died. And then number three, know you are alive. So, know your baptism, know you have died, and know you are alive. Know your baptism here, verses three and four. Paul says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The normal pattern in the early church was that of, I think, receiving Christ, this conversion, and followed by water baptism. And as I often say, that we, we say here, the symbol of water baptism, the immersion, it represents the reality that is ours in Christ. And this reality, I think, is what Paul's getting at here. Through faith in Christ, we have been baptized into his death, his burial, his resurrection. And that is exactly what the water, the immersion of us into the water, the death, the burial, the resurrection symbolizes and represents. So it's almost like they're, they're two, but the one not saving, the one, our faith in Christ, the saving, the converting part of that. So it's hard to separate them that way, but think of it that way. Note the beginning, look at verse 4, the beginning of it, we were buried with him. You have it there? We were buried, therefore, with him. This is not the only place where we've got this idea of with him. It's got the verb here, I believe it's a verb here, has a, has a prefix to it that has this idea of together with. And it's not the only place. It comes up in um, verse 5. You can just skim through. We're united with him. Or verse 6, we're crucified with him. Or verse 8, we will also live with him. Do you hear that with him, the common theme here? This passage speaks, again, to our being united to Christ. And so the baptism in the water symbolizes that. But if we be buried with Christ, with him, so too we are raised with him, just as Christ was raised. 
question here for us is, do we take God at His Word? Do you believe this? If we're united with Christ in His death and burial, then we also are made alive if Christ be raised. So, again, Easter, what we celebrate at Easter, the, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, it comes near to us. The empty tomb is ours. We're not, we're not little gods, but we're in Christ. And that's the key. All of this continues to point back, not to our death and, and our new life, and thank you, Jesus, and I'm off on my own in my ways. It's all, again, funneling. There's no accident here. Back through the glorious one of Jesus Christ. Our lives are bound up in Christ. And so, too, we being raised by the glory of the Father. I think the glory of the Father here, just thinking about the, the power of God, Jesus raised. Are we not raised to life by God making us alive? His power through His Spirit. So that, and you see the last part, that we, too, might walk in newness of life. The last part of verse 4. There's a new walk for those that have died with Christ, buried, and raised with Him. It leads to a new walk. Marcus Johnson has written this. He says, Paul calls us to newness of life. Not on the basis of the notion that we have died and are resurrected with Christ, but on the basis that the power of Christ's death and resurrection is an operative reality in our lives. Reality. What is really real. What is really true. And that is our new life in Christ. This is not a hoped for. I hope one day. It's a present reality. We may not grasp it all. We may not live at times like it is. Or, or maybe even feel at times. But we are a new creation. We're in fact born again by the Spirit to new life. That's, that's who you are. Galatians 2.20 would say this, familiar verse to you. I have been, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. We're a temple for the Spirit. God indwells us, and we long for the day when we'll be reunited, glorified with Him perfectly. But then look at verse 5 here. There's a four, a connection here. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. It seems like verse 5 is kind of a summary of what's come before, and it's also setting up what comes after it here. It's kind of, a, kind of this, this, this intersection where they meet here. And don't let the if take you off track. There's, there's a... Greek way of explaining this, but the, the if here is a true if. It's not an if like maybe. It's a, it's a true condition. It's a true reality. In other words, if you've been united with him, and you put in the parentheses, and you have, so you'll be united in his life. And so we see that here. In fact, the word united here, for if we have been united with him, I mean, let alone what we've seen the with him part, but this united, it has the idea, at least it used to, I don't know what it has these days, but in Greek, it was actually a med, medicinal term to describe the healing of fractured bones where the bones grow back together. That idea is that uniting with Christ. It's not just like, you know, kind of an arm and arm idea. It's, it's bones healing where that bone 
heals back, and it's, it's one. And so we truly are in Christ, united to him in his death and so in his resurrection. There's an idea of closeness, oneness. So know your baptism and what it represents, the water part of it, represents this unity with Christ. I am, I am with Christ. And then Paul takes us on kind of two routes to come back around to this unity in Christ, really looking at unity in his death and then his life. Good verses 6 through 7. We know, here's another know, okay? Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Again, Paul appealing to knowledge here. Know that the old self, this body of sin, it was crucified with Christ. It was brought to an end. It's come to nothing. And verse 6 also asserts that our being crucified with Christ is the means to our being set free, which verse 7 just takes further there. We've been set free from sin. Our status in Adam without the new birth, it is slavery. We are enslaved to sin. We're, we're unable to not sin. We don't want to sin. We, we, it's like we must. We're just unable not to. We sin. It's, it's, our, it's our go-to nature. But our ties by the crucifixion of Christ, ties to slavery, to sin, were crucified on the cross. Christ died for sin in order that we might be free. And this does not mean while we yet groan in these fallen bodies, we live in perfect, again, perfect sinlessness, but that power is broken. Wayne Grudem puts it this way, talking about sanctification, talks about its initial step here. He says this, we think of us being justified. Often, I think there's, there's a present sanctification, but there's progressive as well. Grudem says here, sanctification, being made holy, maybe short, involves a definite break from the ruling power and love of sin so that the believer is no longer ruled or dominated by sin and no longer loves to sin. To be dead to the ruling power of sin means that we as Christians, by virtue of the power of the Holy Spirit, and the resurrection life of Christ working within us have power to overcome the temptations and enticements of sin. Sin will no longer be our master as once it was before we became Christians. And Paul's going to get into this more as we get into chapter 6, and we'll see that again. For now, know your baptism and know that the old man has been crucified and... Lastly, know you are alive in Christ. Look at verses 8 through 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So having died with Christ, we will live with Christ. And the, the proof of that life, how do we know? It's Christ's resurrection. Death has no, no rule. We read the word dominion there. No, no reign. It can't reign over us who are in Christ. Grace is reigning. Life is reigning in us who are in Christ. And again, the central figure in all of this, where does this funnel back to? To Christ. 
And so we come to verses 10 and 11 here, and they really summarize the life of Christ in verse 10 and then the charge of Paul in verse 11. Look at them. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. One death, not over and over, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And Paul, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is Christ who has died to sin, lives to God. It's the truth claim of verse 10, and it's how Paul sets up a standard, a condition upon which he exhorts the Romans to do. Um, one, one commentator, I put it in my notes here, but had said, I, I didn't look this up for sure, but he said this is the first place in verse 11, so you must consider that there's an imperative. Paul, after all these chapters, fi- finally Paul's saying, now do this, consider this. And we'll look at that. All up to this point, it's groundwork, it's basis, and then there's now do this. Isn't that interesting? Often we want to, well, go do this. But there's this know who you are, know your identity in Christ, and then from what follows, do. So let's look at that. Verse 11, the ESV translates Paul here with the command. It's that command. Consider yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. The NASB says, I think, the same thing, consider. The NIV says, I think, count yourselves. Consider, count, reckon. This is not a new word by Paul in this book, actually, because he's, he's already used it uh, prior to this, but also in chapter 4 where Abraham's faith was counted as righteousness. Same kind of word there. Count yourself. So the Greek here is emphatic, and I think you see it in the ESV. I tried to read it slow when I read it, but I think there's emphasis here. It's like, well, the Greek is saying, you all, you all. It's like a double, you all, you all. Or for those from down south, y'all, y'all. It's the same, it's that emphatic, uh, emphaticness. The Greek says, so you also must. You could say that. That's their, their try maybe at the, the, the emphatic nature of this. You must consider this fact true of yourself if you are in Christ. And so Paul, why why can Paul emphatically call on us to do this, to think this way, to consider this? It's because in reality, that's what we are in Christ. It's reality. It's what's real. In Christ, the believer truly is dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. It's not wishful thinking again or or feeling, boy, on a really good spiritual day, I think I'm in Christ. It's, It's reality. And it's reality to grab hold of when we are tempted to see ourselves in a far less victorious position. Doug Moo again, he writes this. Paul uses a present imperative. Imperative, big word for command. Paul uses a present imperative, urging us constantly to view ourselves in this light. As always in Paul, the indicative grounds the imperative. In union with... What, is, what did he just say? The indicative grounds the imperative. These are really important. The indicative, what is, the reality, grounds what we are to do. So there's the command, do this, go do this. But do not go do this. Count yourselves, or as he's going to talk about, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies, fight back, all these sorts of things. But remember, that's based on who you are, the, the indicative, your who are you, the reality. That's what he's talking about here. So, so he says, um, 
as always in Paul, the indicative grounds the imperative. So in union with Christ, we have been made dead to sin and alive to God. It remains for us to appropriate, appropriate, that's verse 11, and apply, verses 12 through 13, what God has done for us. So we really are dead to sin. We really are alive to God in Christ. And then the imperative, as we're going to see further in verse 12, and we'll look at next week, flows out of this identity in Christ. Live out who you are. Three closing thoughts here. Not not perfectly connected, but just three closing thoughts as we look back on this passage and wrap it up. Number one, yes, yes, we battle sin. But remember, we are alive in Christ. It is right for us to speak about an ongoing wrestle and battle with sin. Paul does, again, talked about chapter 7. We do, we wrestle with this, but it's also right to cherish our victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. We have victory over sin in Christ. We've been made alive, never to die again. In Christ, we are, in fact, we are dead to sin's reigning power and gloriously alive in Christ. Consider the victory. Remember the victory that is yours in Christ. Number two, I've mentioned it already, baptism by immersion. That is, the going into the water, coming back out of the water for believers corresponds to this. Grudem says of the, the mode of immersion regarding baptism, says in part that the symbolism of union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection seems to require baptism by immersion. But baptism by sprinkling or pouring simply misses this symbolism. question may be for you today, have you been baptized? Do you have this powerful image and grace running through you? An image not in the, the symbol in the actual water, whether it be in a lake or a pool or some other type of water, do you have that running through you? Not, again, as your salvation, but as a testimony to the reality that is yours in Christ. I encourage you, if you don't, talk to me. I know some are, uh, I know one at least is interested. Talk to me if you are. Again, we did that this summer, but we can, we can do that again. Consider baptism. Consider your victory. Consider baptism. And then number three, Again, consider your identity in Christ. Paul lays out just who we are in Christ. This passage amongst so many places in Scripture we can look at again and again for comfort of who you are in Christ. When the enemy would whisper to you or your own, your own flesh fails again to come back and say, no, this is not who I am. Christ has died to sin and so too have I. Christ has been made alive, so too have I. All of what we celebrate at Easter, death and resurrection, is appropriated to us, our, our own dying, our own new life in Christ through Him. One last quote from Marcus Johnson. He's got a whole book. Again, have I read any of these? I, I, <laughs> whenever I quote a book, I want to be careful. Uh, I've not read the whole. I, I read parts of books and go, that's helpful. And that, maybe that's encouragement to you. But good to read books. But... Here's the whole book, one with Christ, but here's a quote that comes from it. He says, The primary, central, and fundamental reality of salvation 
is our union with Jesus Christ. Because of which union all the benefits of the Savior flow to us, and through which union all these benefits are to be understood. We talked about this some in Sunday school, that God is the hope of the gospel. It's not just us not worshiping Scripture. It is truth, and it leads us, and doctrine leads us, and grows us, and points us to Christ where we will enjoy Him forever. And so all of this, the reality of salvation is this union with Christ. Today, consider yourself, as Paul admonishes, dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is the reality for all of us in Christ, even when the feelings come and go. Today, are you looking for loopholes for sin? Repent of that. Lord, I've been looking for a way to get... I repent. And where? Come back to the cross. Run to Jesus. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive. And then lean on Christ. The reality, when I see the empty cross, there's no statue on the cross. It's empty. He's not there. He's died to sin. He lives forever. He reigns. And our hope and the promise is that we will reign with Him in life. Let's pray. Lord, may this promise be driven deep into our souls for we are prone to forget what we have. Father, when the sin would tempt us again and entice us, may we not whisper, oh, God's grace will cover this one. Oh, Father, may we count and consider ourselves dead to sin. May we despise the taste of it. May it repel us like it repels you. May we remember we are made new in Christ. May we walk in this newness of life by your grace, leading us along. May we anchor our lives in the reality of our identity in Christ. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.